This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey all, happy you're joining us on this week's Dune Talk for a scene-by-scene breakdown of Dune Part 2, Official Trailer 2. If you're tuning in for the first time, know that this is the official show of DuneNewsNet.com. Here we cover everything Dune, whether it's on the page or on the screen. Last show, we shared reactions and discussed highlights from the second trailer, and now we're excited to dive uh, deeper into its revelations. This is Marcus Gabriel, your editor at DuneNewsNet.com, and I'm here with four connoisseurs of Dune and cinema. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Really excited about doing this uh, full spoiler episode with the guys. Um, I think we're going to delve into some areas that we haven't been able to do before just because we don't want, ever want to spoil this story for the newbies, but it's going to be exciting to do it today. Here once again, thanks everyone for tuning in and the support on the recent videos. Uh, definitely excited to dive into trailer two with full spoilers and uh, hear everyone's insights, especially uh, being the less educated of the Dune Dune crew here. Um, thank you all for coming and excited to dive into it. Thanks for having me back uh, for another deep dive into the trailer. Uh, excited to sort of pick apart the trailer and see what clues we can find and uh, go spoiler-tastic on this trailer. Hey, everyone. Simon here. Uh, Mark said spoiler-tastic. Uh, I can't wait until we start our deep dive and really break down this trailer. Uh, hopefully people have read the book. If not, like, subscribe, and come back, and uh, we're going to get into some serious stuff. Dune Movie News. So as mentioned today, we're going in-depth into the footage of the official trailer 2, and there will be spoilers if you haven't read the original novel or watched its previous adaptations. The trailer opens with a shot of the twin moons of Arrakis, partially eclipsing its sun. The smaller moon to the lower left is called Muad'Dib by the Fremen after the little desert mouse that we saw several times in uh, part one. Uh, so, and this is also the, the name that Paul chooses to be known as publicly among the Fremen. We haven't seen how that will be handled in the film. Uh, however, in the book, his naming takes place soon after the, the fight with uh, Jamas, uh, when Jessica and himself are accepted into Fremen society. And this isn't just a beautiful shot. Uh, the hue of the sun here connects with the colors we're seeing in other parts of the trailer. Like remember in the first film, we didn't see as much of the, like this this orangey color, but uh, here we, we are seeing some orange filled uh, fight scenes that we'll, we'll get into. We've also talked about an eclipse and I'm expecting that there will be some sort of natural phenomena going on. Um, and the Fremen will see that as a sign and that, that's also gonna connect to something that we're gonna dis discuss uh, later. So the eclipse are a big part of Dune and it was, I know I've said this before, but it's not a mystery why Denis used Pink Floyd's Eclipse in the first trailer that we ever got for part one. So remember that song, people, because that's going to be very crucial as the story moves forward. Yeah, I definitely agree with your assessment there, Marcus. I think that's an interesting thing to key on. I think we've talked about that. I think after the first trailer, you know, we had some speculation um, so that would be very cool if that is how they implement some of the color and some of the um, symbolism uh, around Paul, for example. Uh, we have the parallel to part uh, one where we see Paul. He takes off his gloves and then he's uh, touching the sands again with, with his bare hands. And he's pondering the, the cruelty of the planet and its uh, oppressors, the Harkonnens. 
And on cue, where we see a gunship laying down heavy fire on the side of what appears to be location of one of the sieges. This will likely be one of the Harkonnen attacks as they seek to brutally suppress the Fremen who are rebelling against our rule. We again see the shots of Raban and the Baron. The former is looking at the, at the latter who would be floating up with his suspensors. This appears to be connected to the next shot where we see the massive scale of the Harkonnen forces who are occupying the, the planet. The only other time it would make sense for the Baron to be on Arrakis would be really towards the end of the movie. So that's why I'm, I'm seeing that this scene should be taking place early in the movie. Uh, some type of formal cer ceremony where the Baron is re-awarding uh, the governorship of Arrakis to Raban. And there's, there's certainly a gravitas to, uh, to Raban's look that would uh, support that. We see Paul talking to Chani and other Fremen, uh, acknowledging that they've suffered um, under the Harkonnen rule for many decades, because the Harkonnens had been occupying uh, Arrakis for many decades before the Atreides arrived. Uh, but then he also shares that House Atreides Harkonnen, uh, House Harkonnen feud has gone back far longer than that. Um, like uh, Paul Timothy Chalmay mentions centuries, but it's actually millennia, we know. <laughs> um, the result is, is shown in the next several shots, uh, where all of the trees, or almost all of them, have been massacred. We, we see that uh, the shots of the Harkonnens uh, burning piles of bodies, and this takes place probably soon after the assault of uh, on Arakin that we saw in the first film. The grief and pain from the death of his father is still fresh within Paul. Not much time has passed here. We again see the painting of Leto uh, before the trailer cuts to his mother, Lady Jessica, who is still very much alive. Um. With the painting, I don't know if anyone else has really mentioned or touched on this just yet. I've seen this trailer so many times now, and there is the the there's a portrait of Duke Leto. I think even in the first trailer that they show on fire, it's one of the kind of symbols of their fall. And that portrait, it's very you know regal. It's probably something that they did on Caladan before they came to Arrakis, of course. And it's interesting because in this trailer there is a this portrait uh, of Duke Leto, but I, the first dozen, two dozen times I watched the trailer, I was like, okay, it's this, it's the same painting or portrait, but it's actually not. Um, in terms of this image and then the image that we see later and, and we saw in trailer one of the portrait burning, um, that is actually happening. They are burning his portrait, but this one looks like it's actually happening or envisaged here inside of a uh, vision probably of Paul's. Um, because with the lighting, it's very much reminiscent of the lighting we saw in his visions from the first movie, that yellow kind of golden haze to it. Um, and even the framing is different. The background is different. It looks kind of like a, um, uh, I'm not even sure what would be the proper uh, term, but like these religious kind of portraits or um uh, Looks depicted. very Catholic, like almost yeah. a Catholic design of of Mother Mary or something. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. These these depictions of religious figures, and yeah. there's the the light behind him, the rays of kind of like the sun, and he looks very you know uh, kind of perfect in the way that he is presented. And also, it's kind of leaning like on this wall, or maybe like some sort of like stone wall. And I'm wondering, this seems like it could be a uh, hint towards some things in Dune Messiah that we could potentially see, um, maybe including certain, uh, you know, vestiges of Duke Leto himself that I won't necessarily go into. But I think that that could be I like that we're seeing some of this already because it is continuing to build that 
that legend and that kind of aura around the Atreides and, and harkens back even to the tent scene from part one, where he talks about, you know, the shrine of my father's skull, there's an army. And I think that I just love those things when it talks about visions and, and uh, prophecy and things like that. I think that's really fun. And, and this just is like a blink and you'll miss it moment, but I think it is fun to, to kind of touch on that more specifically. And that does, you know, let us know that there are going to be at least one, uh, but probably multiple vision sequences in this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of what they hint at for the future uh, in this one. At the 21 second mark, we see Jessica telling Paul that his father didn't believe in revenge. And that is a big part of who Duke Leto Atreides was. He was very much the pacifist. And what I love is next we get that weird little orange, like Johnny said, very 1984 Lynch-ish um, color. And then we just see Jessica just beat up a saddle car. But what's amazing is, first, your father didn't believe in revenge. And then she goes completely crazy on him. So showing the opposite of the two parents. But what's great is, I don't know who cut this trailer, but as soon as she hits him, we see Chani's hand and we hear a boom. I, As someone that edits this show, if you're watching the visuals, uh, I, I thought that was just beyond amazing. Then we get the shot of what looks like a bunch of Fremen's coming in and sliding into maybe behind an ornithopter or something, Paul talking about fighting together. And I feel like that could be early on in the movie where Paul's like, hey, we have a big threat. They're the Harkonnens. I know about them. And kind of give the whole, I don't want to say his battle cry because that'll be later on in the video, but kind of his telling the troops like, hey, we got to fight these guys and I know how we can take them down. Then probably one of Garen's least favorite shots ever in Dune history. <laughs> An ornithopter blowing up. Uh, Paul and Chani working together with Bazooka, which I don't remember any of that ever in the book. Uh, has there ever been mention of them working with such big heavy weapons as a Bazooka? There is a mention of different projectile weapons as opposed to handheld, you know, swords and things. So... There's sort of this, Frank Herbert's just using this broad category of projectile weapons, but I don't remember anything being a bazooka-like uh, weapon. Do you, uh, Marcus? Uh, I mean, in, in the book, uh, like Frank Herbert didn't go into detail in, in a lot of these these battles. There was a lot of guerrilla warfare <laughs> going on, but, you know, it was happened off screen. Yeah, and in the, the Lynch film as well, they had the Fremen had like the chest-mounted cannons or something that they, they used to take out. Uh, carryalls and stuff like that but uh, again don't think it's specifically mentioned in the book yeah let's not talk about the lynch and weapons and fremens um what <laughs> all right then we get a couple of shots of paul and cheney working together which i love like i i think i said this or one of us said it. we see the romantic part of it their love working together also and creating the Paul and Chani team. Like I've always imagined them going on adventures and destroying stuff very much like this. Then we get the studio logos, uh, what looks like a siege um, that Johnny mentioned in the last podcast. So I'm not going to talk more about it. Go back, listen to that podcast or watch it because 
Johnny brought up some very interesting points about this shot. And then probably one of my favorite shots, and I feel like this is very early on in the movie, when you see a couple of Fremen's talking to Paul and saying, you're not welcome. Because, you know, he's the outsider. He's not from Arrakis. And I just love how Xiaomi kind of gives me the same energy as Peter O'Toole a little bit in Lawrence of Arabia right here. Maybe it's just how his hood's placed, but overall, once again, it's telling us a little bit about the story from the beginning of the trailer. Hey, Harkonnens are bad. I can help you. And then we see the evolution of Paul also in this trailer. About the 44 second mark, you can see uh, Jessica in the background as well. And it looks like Paul and Jessica are wearing the same costumes as they were at the end of part one. And we know that part two picks up right, you know, it's a continuation. So it's possible that this is either the very first scene or Paul and Jessica entering the siege for the first time. That, that would be my guess based on the costumes. Paul, after the fight with, with, with Jamas, like uh, he, he and uh, Jessica have been, uh, I guess, accepted into Fremen society, but that doesn't mean that um, all the Fremen uh, accept them. So you're seeing already here that, that there's some, some resistance. And we know that that resistance continues years later. Like there are even like um, at certain points, some of the, the Fremen are trying to challenge uh, Paul. And there are, there are even scenes in the books. We, we know that Chani has to fight uh, Fremen to, to the death uh, to, so that they don't take up <laughs> Paul's time. Yes. So moving right along to kind of this next chunk of the trailer, uh, we get another bright orange quick shot here of I'm just loving the textures and the color and and the, the the kind of framing of this shot. It's really brief and there's kind of this rack focus. Um, you have these, Simon, I know you mentioned earlier, Sardaukar. I think it's Harkonnen soldiers based on the armor and the their costumes. Um, they are, they're very, pretty much exactly the same, you know, maybe very similar to the ones we saw in the opening of part one when they were out uh, protecting the harvester. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really curious to see the sequence, but I love the, the framing and the, they're coming over the top of the dune and then it racks focus to this other thing at the bottom, which we can't really see or tell what it is. And then we get a, a cool shot of, uh, it again, it's kind of similar to the opening of part one. It's Chani kind of perched on this dune and she's in her full kind of, uh, uh, uniform there. And then we have, uh, Paul who's also hiding next to her and rolling over and, and she's telling him to be quiet. So, Again, where is this in the film? What's the context? It's hard to say, but um, it does seem like both both of those two characters plus Lady Jessica are going to be, at least whether this is real, a dream, a vision, whatever it may be, they are fighting these these Harkonnen soldiers out, out on the dunes. Um, and then we cut also, it includes this comment, this kind of quote from Chani where she says, you know, I won't be fighting for him. I'm fighting for my people. So bringing in more of, and this is a consistent thread throughout the trailer, but this feeling of almost like tension or maybe some friction, at least on a surface level that she's projecting between being responsible for and being true to the Fremen, but also her feelings that she's going to develop for Paul. And and it'll be, I'm curious to see, you know, it, Chani seems to be a lot more active as a character in this adaptation versus the book. So very curious to see how that's going to affect her relationships with some of these other characters and how that could be different from the novel. Um, but she does seem to be pretty <laughs> angry. She's not yelling, but she does seem to be pretty, um, you know, intense about uh, whoever she's talking to. Um, so we have that. And then 
There's also the quick cut. We saw this in the first trailer, but it's just Paul fighting. Looks like a couple of the Harkonnen soldiers with a sword, um, which looks pretty cool. And, and uh, the action, I think, is going to be improved upon from the first movie. Um, and then we get the, uh, you know, scene right out of the book. I know you all, especially from the 1984 film, probably really have a uh, admiration for this scene. But basically, we have a reunite, uh, uh, these two reuniting between Gurney and Paul. Um, and uh, that's going to be right after. This is probably right after the scene we got earlier in the trailer where they're attacking the, the harvester. Um, I imagine Gurney will end up being involved somehow and then they'll, they'll be coming face to face, which will be great. Should be a fun, fun moment. And it's going to be again, interesting. How does this fall in the overall scope of the movie? Like this would have to be, I would assume a little bit earlier on because Gurney's going to have to be there. He's going to have to have some sort of presence with the Fremen and with Jessica and Paul in the back half of the movie, at least. So um, I'm again, curious to see how that's going to be uh depicted obviously they're not too worried about showing it in the trailer so it seems like that's gonna be something that's not gonna be a huge surprise necessarily at least for fans of the book but um we also have this uh, back and forth it seems between just Stilgar and Jessica um where Jessica is kind of questioning Stilgar asking you know do you believe in Paul um and we get also some intercutting between that conversation and Paul writing the sandworm which of course we got a big chunk of in the the prior trailer and then uh, Stilgar just says, there are signs, <laughs> which is, uh, it's almost kind of ominous the way he says it, but you can feel there's a bit of, there's a belief there. Um, if maybe, if maybe some apprehension as well. And then uh, I think Javier Bardem is going to have one of the maybe stronger performances in the movie. He seems like he's really keyed in and, and just to the right approach for this character. Um, and then we get, of course, more cheering and, uh, a couple more shots of the the worm riding, and then that real. I love this great push in close up on Stilgar. Just again talking about Bardem's performance, he is just he has just everything on his face. He just is selling the the uh, kind of awe, but also maybe some of the fear um, that is also coming along with this prophecy possibly coming to fruition. So um, I'm loving that. I'm loving the again the kind of interplay between all these different mixed emotions maybe between Shani and Stilgar and Jessica and everything that's happening with Paul and the Fremen. I do want to mention something about that orange tilt. The more I think about it, could that be during the eclipse maybe? Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, that's what we speculated on. I think after the first trailer, we were talking about that. I think that's definitely a possibility for sure. Also when Paul takes out that, uh, Harkonnen soldier, just the spin around move that he does. If you like playing in slow mo, I know Mark, you talked about how Denis likes to work with dancers, but Paul has some fancy feet there. Like, <laughs> yeah. if you look, but if you if you remember in the uh, training scene training with Gurney room. in the first film, when we see Paul, he's doing the same spin move when he's attacking yeah. the the dummy, mm-hmm. the Harkonnen dummy. So. Uh, training becomes a reality for Paul there you know you guys we had speculated a couple of episodes back that that maybe these these infused red scenes and then the Gidi Prime sort of uh, black and white uh, we we wondered if maybe that was kind of an artistic decision or it was to emphasize something I, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that no it's it's literal it's the, there is a an actual uh, eclipse occurring, which is changing. You know, if you guys remember that eclipse a few years back, 
it's like that. It's like the, you you went outside at your office building and it was like the all everything was a different hue. You know, it was like <laughs> that. Obviously, this is more intense because uh, because of you're, you're on a different planet. But I, I just think that's interesting that maybe the only artistic indicators will be what Villeneuve did in part one, which is the pro- the prophetic uh, dreamlike sequences where, you know, you kind of have that uh, light, uh, you know, growing on the screen or, or blinding your the camera. Um, and maybe everything else is actually literal. So I, I think we're kind of coming to that conclusion. This connects to what I was alluding to uh, earlier, like the whole idea of eclipse or other natural uh, signs that are sort of convincing the, the Fremen that, oh yeah, Paul Paul really is, is a prophet, right? Because the Bene Gesserit have installed the Missionaria Protativa and that's been operating in, in Arrakis already for a millennia. And they would have obviously known about like, what sort of natural occurrences happen on Arrakis that are maybe rare and, you know, use those to, to the advantage in the future. That's definitely a good point. And what you can't see in the trailer is going to be all the Bene Gesserit on the other side of the moon pushing it. In the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the path of the sun. But uh, no, I think, I think we are definitely coming to some good conclusions. And again, this is speculation for now, but I, I agree. And I think Villeneuve, whether you like it or not, what he definitely is interested in is how alien some of these things can be and like depicting in a way that still is natural and feels like it makes sense in the world and like like the science fiction of of the uh the world of dune so i think that that makes sense and again we are certainly going to be seeing the maybe the lines blurred a little bit in terms of visions and things like that but definitely gonna be a spicier movie i would say probably than the the first one Right. So uh, the trailer then picks up with uh, Paul and Gurney speaking. This seems to be slightly later after Gurney has joined the, the tribe. Gurney's in his still suit as opposed to his, his smaller outfit. Paul's got his blue within blue eyes of the Abad. And Gurney seems to be encouraging Paul to, to take up the mantle of the prophet and use that to his advantage. So it seems like... Uh, we're getting hints of what will happen in Dune Messiah. It's Denny is clearly laying out that Paul is not necessarily a good guy um, in the in the framework of the Dune universe. Um, we also see a, a vision which could be Jessica. I don't know if anyone's got any different thoughts on that. Could be Cheney, maybe a vision of Aaliyah. How that ties into Paul taking the mantle of the prophet. It, I don't see that connection from the trailer, but this is just a trailer trickery, I think. Then we get into the Water of Life scene, which uh, we discussed last time. Um, and I tried to keep spoiler-free last time, but the there's some fingertips going into a bottle of blue liquid. Now, that matches very closely a scene in the book when Paul has taken the Water of Life and is comatose. And Cheney dips her fingers into the water of life and uses that to uh, revive him effectively. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking that's possibly what that scene is. Um, speculation, of course. Um, we've, we've got the shots of um, Jessica and Romalo, uh, which looks like the, the water of life scene for them when uh, Jessica gets all the ancestral memories from Romalo. Um, so how that scene will be presented um, and how that affects a unborn child as well. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, uh, but looking forward to that. Uh, we then get a shot of Paul running up June Cheney, who's looking out at something. 
And I think that that relates uh, to a shot in, elsewhere in the trailer of where the ornithopters have destroyed a siege. Um, and we know from the book that Cheney has uh, a son with Paul. So if, if the film is faithful to that and there's a blue head scarf, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, which seems to indicate it is, I think that this is Cheney and Paul seeing the aftermath of that and, you know, realising what that means for Leto II, the first. A very quick shot of uh, the Emperor um, and Paul holding his Chris knife. This is a different Chris knife than we saw in the previous one. There's different designs on it. So he's got his own Chris knife now. He's not borrowing Cheney's again. Conspiracy theory alert. <laughs> if you look at this shot, <laughs> on the right-hand side, we can see uh, the Emperor and various uh, people. The left-hand side, between Paul's legs, is completely black. Now, that could just be the lighting of the scene, or perhaps they are blacking out some characters on that side of the shot. Who knows? But uh, certainly when the film comes out, I'll be paying attention to what's on the left-hand side of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, Mark, I've... Seriously. You know, Mark, I've seen that scene a million times, especially when I was grabbing freeze frames. And I was like, why can't we see that other scene? I mean, that left-hand side. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, it might be just the light, like you said. But I think they're blocking something out. Maybe. It could well be. It's out. <laughs> hey, Marvel's known to do that, so why can't Denis do it, right? Yeah, it just doesn't look balanced. I mean, you study that shot and you see lighting on the emperor and all the people standing alongside him. And then there's just this block or almost a, a pyramid of black. That doesn't, that doesn't work in the shot for my, for my eyes. Also in the trailer, you can see some people to that side of him in a very brief shot. So it looks like there's Irulan to the side of the emperor. Um, but certainly in that shot, is Aaliyah there? Is it a guild navigator? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows yeah. what could be there? <laughs> I like that. I had not thought about that. But honestly, when you look at it, like I have it freeze frame right now and I'm looking at it, it looks like they just went into Photoshop and just filled that area out. Who knows? There might be a Baron's head. Who knows what's there? <laughs> um, real quick, just to uh, reinforce, Mark, what you were saying about the water of life and the coma. Um, I think you're definitely onto something there. I didn't, I haven't read the book in a while. I am starting to reread it now, but I didn't recall how he came out of that coma or that, that thing with the fingers that you were mentioning. Um, but that shot of the fingers going into the liquid, he says, he's talking about all my visions lead to horror. There's a vision right before that, but there's also that, uh, close up of his eyes and he's, he's sleeping. Um, but he's maybe in a coma. Um, and that may have be where he's being woken up. You see his eyes are kind of moving a little bit under the, oh, the lid. Okay. So it's a good catch. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, I think it is actually not obviously like one to one sequentially, but I think that is potentially tying those together, at least uh, in terms of our minds thinking about the book. Um, but yeah, I think I had heard other people mention the, uh, that liquid and that I, I assumed, I guess, having not as much familiarity that that was part of the water of life with Jessica um, and Romalo, like you were talking about. Cause then also right after that, we do get Jessica and Romalo, but uh, yeah, I think that is some trickery with those two shots versus the other two shots of Paul and the actual fingers. I just, I want to talk about uh, Mark uh, 
on the trailer at one minute, 10 seconds. So I know you, you said we see this uh, younger-ish woman walking toward mm -hmm. the sunset. Um, I've, I've watched this a dozen different times. And of course, they very deftly cut right before you can see her face <laughs> turn. Um, but it, it does look dream sequence-like. It looks vision-like with kind of the lens flare and the things, the, the, the focus blurry in the background. Is this Aaliyah in the future? Is this an indicator of we see Aaliyah, but we don't see her as a, as a young toddler like in the book? We see her because she's such an important character, as, as everyone who knows the, the book series uh, understands. So... And, and then again, I thought, well, wait a minute, is that possibly Jessica's? I always look at the gate and the way people walk and I try and match it to the actor. And is it is it uh, Rebecca Ferguson? I don't think so. Like, I, I don't see it, but you get so little time to to study that. So I guess I want to believe it's <laughs> and it's just an older Aaliyah or just a little bit older. But would that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I do think I hadn't really thought about the close up, like the profile, uh, you know, side shot that we get. The hair and the the side of the face does look like Rebecca Ferguson, um, in terms of like shape and everything. But and and even the kind of the skin tone, you can kind of tell a little bit. But who knows? I mean, again, that could be trickery, or that could be, you know, Rebecca Ferguson almost as like a stand-in for her daughter, um, you know, in the future or something like that. I mean, there's so many different possibilities one thing i wasn't sure about because i've only read the first two books so i don't know where, where things go from there would it make any sense at all would it be possible that this could also be maybe um get far further down the line like paul's daughter potentially would that be something that would make any sense because also just the fact that it's out in the desert like in this completely barren land i don't know yeah if that's i mean again symbolic versus you know what's real but uh, yeah, there's definitely multiple, you know, conclusions that I think you could try to draw from that. It would, but I would say if they were going to do that, they would use more of a male presence for Lito II, uh, yeah. without yeah. going into full spoilers for that. That's I'm fair. still thinking, like, Mark, I think you, the one I mentioned on the last show, it could be part of Jessica's water of life vision. Mm -hmm. That's true. What I'm curious about is right after that shot, like the profile shot that gets cut off uh, at 111, what is that weird little thing at the bottom? Is that just a lens flare or are they trying to like blur something out? It looks really weird that it would be there because the shot looks beautiful without it. And that gold tilt right there, the bottom is just very interesting to me. Do but they get I'm J.J. Go... Abrams to direct any scenes? Do we know? <laughs> right. Total, it's a total J.J. scene. Um, but I'm going to go with Jessica's vision. Maybe once she starts her, I don't want to say coma per se, but coma-ish <laughs> uh, part of her journey. Or maybe once she's starting to wake up. I don't yeah. think it's Aaliyah as much as I want to be. Saying, hey guys, I told you Leo's in the trailer. <laughs> uh, listen to the last episode, people, if you haven't. I, I, I do put on my tinfoil hat for that quite a bit. Um, but I think it's Jessica, and I agree with you, Garen. I, I've been trying to look, is it Rebecca Ferguson? 
Is it the way she walks? Could it be Rebecca Ferguson being a Leah later and showing, like, who knows? November wow. 4th, get here. Come on, <laughs> hurry up. I like how when we have these discussions, I, I kind of change my mind. I think the way Denis is approaching this story, he's making sure that you don't have to have read the book nine times like we have, right? You you can come into this and not be confused. Villeneuve is not even leaving, he's not even introducing all the names, you know, of, of, of roles and groups of people. And like, he's making it so that it's not confusing, right? So it's sort of like Occam's razor. It's like, he's gonna make it simple. He's not gonna confuse them. So I'm gonna go with this shot that we're talking about at one, one minute 11. I'm going to go with that is um, the, the water of life uh, transformation yeah. of Jessica, because to confuse people with, wait, is that some daughter of the future? Is that, <laughs> I don't think Villeneuve's going to do that. I think he's going to yeah. be gentle with the audience and, and he's going to be crystal clear about Alia is this little person over here and kind of freaky. And he's not going to sort of cross lines and confuse people. I, I like Simon's idea that it is that water of life and Jessica in her mind, what she's seeing or experiencing. I think that makes actually a lot of sense. So that that's, and again, that ties right into the water of life, couple shots that we do see in the trailer. So. Right. And before we go to the uh, next segment, so going to that, that shot of, um, of Paul holding the, the knife at 121. So to be clear here, like the knife has blood and blood in it. So this is after Paul has killed fade. And yeah. as we touched on last time, we see the emperor, he's, completely defeated here you know his his last potential hope was that fade would would kill paul and get rid of the, the problem immediately but now the emperor you know like the, the curtain has fallen there's there's nothing else he can do he's he's lost uh, all his power well unless there's a certain count who um pops up <laughs> it's my turn um so i get to talk about something that i, I had read the book many, many times, and I just did not understand this, this important uh, indicator or symbol of, of something in Fremen society. So, so at one minute, uh, 23 seconds, uh, we see Chani uh, talking to Paul, and she has a blue uh, headband, hairband. And it, it's, not, it's not just a stylistic choice that... Uh, that Zendaya made. It, it actually is what's called the Zenhoni scarf. And it's worn by a, a married or associated, uh, sometimes it's not marriage, but but uh, a, a man and a woman who are together, I guess, in this case. Um, and it indicates that she has born a son. So this may be, well, clearly, this is after uh, Leto II has been born. Um, and, and this is a really interesting uh, part of the story. I, I've often wondered, you know, why did Frank Herbert bring uh, this Leto second baby uh, that is the, the offspring of Paul and Chani into this story? Because this this poor little character has such a brief life, right? And it, and there's very very little. In fact, I reread the chapters uh, that involve uh, Leto the second, uh, the, the firstborn of Chani and Paul, and. There just is hardly anything said about this little guy. Um, and he is killed at Siege uh, Tabor uh, on a raid by the Harkonnens. And, and I'm going to go with uh, whoever earlier said there's a, there's a shot, maybe it was you, Mark, where Chani's walking over the ridge of, of the dunes and, and Paul's coming up behind her. And 
perhaps she's witnessing this very attack that ends up uh, perhaps being the one where Leto II is killed as a, as a, as a baby. Um, I, I also just think if maybe this helps us to understand Paul's evolution uh, as he's becoming the Kwisatz Haderach, to see he has to deal with, there's nothing more uh, frightening to me as a father than losing my child, right? I, I, I'd do anything other than losing a child, right? Well, so Frank Herbert introduces this experience right out of the gate in 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 this sort of part of the, the movie we're going to see where he has to deal with the grief of, of losing this little baby, his firstborn, who is named after Duke Leto. Um, so, so again, this is part of the story. Uh, Villeneuve is including the, the elements that are so essential to those of us that are fans. And I really appreciate the fact that he's doing that. He's not going too far afield in introducing, uh, you know, uh, uh, things like uh, was done in the 84 movie with, you know, the weirding modules and stuff. I, I like that Villeneuve is really staying true uh, to, to the novel. Garen, going back to your point about um, the firstborn, I think it's supposed to help Paul's art into, I don't want to say madness, but drive him even more angry against the Harkonnens and maybe not help Cheney understand who they are, but even have Cheney feel anger. And it's supposed to like make us feel horrible and feel bad for Paul and Cheney and what's going on and really not become pro Harkonnen at any time. I think it's a crucial thing and I'm super happy that we even get a little hint at it because I, I hate saying it, but I want to see that scene. I want to see Chalamet and Zendaya really act about the death of their child because it is so important. And as we get into Messiah, it will be even more important towards the end of that book or that film, what happens. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. <clears throat> so, yeah. To that point too, just real quick, um, don't want to try to get into Frank Herbert's own intentions or thoughts necessarily, but at least in terms of the movie, like for the audience watching this, you know, there is this conflict or there's supposed to be this kind of push and pull between well, we want Paul to go do this thing, but, but we also know there's this fear and there's this terrible potential for uh, the consequences of that. Um, and I think that something like a child being killed, especially the child of our two lead, you know, kind of heroes. Um, I think that kind of, it, it's interesting because it kind of implicates the audience in like, well, what else could you make? What else could you use to motivate an audience to want these people to go kill and go to war? Well, if you go ahead and kill a baby, that's pretty bad. <laughs> um, and uh, I think, you know, the emotional turmoil that comes with that, I think I think that'll be a very, it's a very important part of the story. And I think in, in the film in particular is going to be very important um, as probably we're going to be going into like the back half of the film and, and seeing really the war like coming to a head. So um, yeah, I'm I'm super excited for that part of it. Just the the confliction between these different uh, feelings that are gonna people are gonna be having the characters themselves and also the audience, of course. Um, then next after that, uh, uh, we, we see uh, Irlan and Shaddam uh, playing chess. 
So there actually is chess mentioned in the book. It's actually uh, called pyramid chess, I believe. I don't, I can't remember the exact term that's used. Mark, maybe you know, but they are playing this chess game together um, on on Shaitan, and and so again, we're going to see that interaction, the relationship between the emperor. The emperor plays such a crucial role in this part of the book and in this part of the movie. Um, so we're going to have to be introduced to his. Uh, so in part one, we we got we got um, foreshadowing into what kind of a character he is and what his what his uh, uh, attributes are. But now we're going to actually see them demonstrated, right? And it'll be just really interesting um, to see how this is all all portrayed and written in, into the script as to you know what the emperor is really is really like um, because he's he's on the surface kind of, in fact, Frank Herbert describes him as almost looking similar to uh, to Duke Leto with, with kind of these aquiline hawk-like features. And I know that's not necessarily what Villeneuve has done with his casting decisions, but um, you know, there is a part of the emperor that is almost calm and, and deceptively peaceful when underneath he's ruthless. He's absolutely deceptive and ruthless beyond belief. And so it'll be really interesting to see that uh, portrayed on screen with, with some uh, really great actors. Also, there's a shot that I'm, maybe it's my tinfoil hat and it'll make more sense when you guys see it. At 132 of Erlon just looking herself defeated with the weird metal headgear, whatever that is. Um, my God, that, I had a thought. <laughs> Go ahead, Simon. Steal it. I, I wonder if we're going to have the same thought. <laughs> Is it once she knows that now she's going to be married to Paul, and so, she's? Is that part of your thought too? That's part of my thought. But my thought, actually, now that you're saying that, and now that I'm really looking at the shot, I mean, I could. This is total. This is tinfoil hat territory, no doubt. Could this be like wedding attire? Oh <laughs> snap! Could, could we get some after kind of like a, uh, an epilogue almost maybe that closes out the movie where, cause she does look defeated and she looks like almost emotional. You can see her eyes are kind of like watered up and it is like, I know people have said, Oh, it almost looks like medieval kind of armor or regalia kind of like that. But I mean, when you really look at it, it looks like it's, it's, it's uh decorative it's very ornate and obviously there's the ornate costumes that we see the warriors using and whatnot but it feels like almost like a gown or like for a very formal occasion now this could be something a tinfoil hat coming off this could be something on their home world this could be some ceremony that we see maybe just to get a better idea of the carinos and their lifestyle and whatnot um but even the background i mean the it, it, italian set that we saw it was it was stone and it was kind of uh, brutalist in some ways but if you look i mean this could be on arrakis potentially i mean this looks like it could be like the keep like in erikin um with the way the light is coming in through the sides and whatnot and just kind of almost you could see overhanging like um stone in the back yeah hey folks hey i'm, I'm gonna join you Simon, a little bit there i will say that is just one theory it could be maybe we see that actually come to fruition on screen instead of just hearing that it's going to happen so i double match your tinfoil hat theory <laughs> with yes i think this could be a possible wedding scene and 
one of my favorite lines in the whole entire first book, and probably my favorite line in the book, is when Jessica and Shawnee have a dialogue, which I know we said full spoiler, but I don't want to go into it too much. When <laughs> Jessica tells Shawnee something super important about the marriage of Erlon and Paul, mm-hmm. and I think if we see the marriage happen, then yeah. Jessica could say that line, fade yeah. to black, have the credits and then have Jason Momoa's eyes open up. So that's a whole different story for part two. Um, I think it could true. be, oh, yeah. I think it could be a wedding scene. The way I was looking at it was when Faye dies and then she knows that she's going to be stuck with Paul and be just a puppet. And she does yeah. give me very Florence Pugh midsummer vibes right here. If anyone's seen that movie, just her Danny face. And then we see uh, the shot that is just prior to um, Fade uh, entering the gladiator arena. And we see him um, holding uh, the, the knives that he will be, um, uh, he will be uh, using in that battle. I guess, I guess I did miss, miss one shot where um, the emperor says, deal with this prophet. And we see kind of an image panning back of, of Paul. Um, so, uh, I uh, maybe maybe those actual words are in Frank Herbert's novel, but whether they are or not, you know, it's going to have to be very clear that in the emperor's mind, uh, Paul he at first he doesn't even know who this Maud Deep character is. In fact, he's asking the Baron, "Who's this Maud Deep guy?" And the Baron's lying to him, saying, "Oh, he's just some fanatic. He's just some crazy, you know, Fremen." And at some point. In, in the movie, at least in Villeneuve's script, he's going to reveal, no, this is, you know, this is a prophet. This is someone who is a part of this prophetic legend. And then the emperor is going to say, deal with this prophet, get rid of him. I, I need him out of the picture. So I don't know exactly when this is going to come into the script of, of this adaptation, uh, but that's obviously an important uh, part of the story. <clears throat> but I, again, we talked about it earlier, but now we see this gladiator scene this is probably in the image, uh, part of the uh, sequence right before Fade enters the arena where you see in, in the first trailer, these big doors opening and the light coming through. And, and I think it's just, you know, sinister the way Villeneuve is, is portraying uh, Fade as, as this, this just like a predatory animal, you know, just uh, with, with the styling and, and, and the way um, Austin Butler is, is is his his look and you know the, the just no eyebrows and sort of that Harkonnen design, but just the crazy you know intense like I, I like how Johnny always always uses the term feral because that's how it feels that he's just out for blood and and uh, seeing these knives up close and how eager he is to uh, to kill the gladiator that he fights, which is something that he does often. This is kind of the celebratory. Um, almost like bullfighting thing on on uh, in Harco, the the uh, main city of of Gidi Prime, and and it will just be really fascinating to see how that all plays out. But the, the the tension is being built in this image right here of who who fate is. So anyway, just uh, I won't go into the whole gladiator scene because that's that's really an exciting part of the the story. But I think Villeneuve is doing a really good job of. Uh, creating the build-up to that scene. 
note on that last shot with the the blades, which I'm sure everyone has noticed this by now, but I think it's just such a great little touch. Um, there's when he's holding these blades, you can see his thumbs are like slowly sliding up towards the the handles, which I think is just like there's just this. It's almost like a sensual thing with the Harkonnens, this killing and brutality and savagery. And I think Fade in particular, I mean, even in the novel, even though, you know, he's he's a younger man, he is kind of made out to be like this almost like idealistic type of, of Harkonnen. And that's why his position is like the heir. Um, and so I think that there is, and we know that there's this dynamic between him and Lady Margot Fennering. And so there's, again, there's a sensuality to that as well. And Fade is kind of seen as like the cream of the crop, at least in terms of the Harkonnen. So I think that an awesome butler, very handsome guy. So I think it's just going to be very interesting to see all the stuff with Fade because most of what we have right now is the gladiator fight. Outside of that, how is this character going to act? What is the sensibility is going to be around the, the depiction there? I think that is going to be very interesting because physically appearance wise, I think very different from what a lot of people would have expected or maybe even wanted. Um, but it's, it's just going to be, you know, I think Villeneuve is very, he knows in the way he's talked about the character, he kind of knows what it has to entail. And so I think just kind of finding that balance or seeing how they try to balance that will be, well, that's one of the things I'm most excited about, I think mentioned like these characters are really young like i'm referring to paul and, and fate the, the, these are teenagers they're basically just just coming of age um and as per the book the arena match takes place on the day that fate turns 17 years old uh, the big contrast uh here is that um for paul like we've just seen the, seen the, the duel with jamas where he's killed the man for a first time and this arena fight is fade's hundredth kill it's it's a celebration um in, in effect you know like where the baron wants to show off that this is the the, the heir who's who's you know going to take over him and show like you know like what 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 a what a great uh, successor he has, um, and it's interesting though because when Fade first sees his, his opponent, he realizes this this won't be an easy fight. Like uh, from the book, it, it mentions his thoughts. It's one of Duke uh, Leto's fighting men we've took on Arrakis. Fade Rotha taught no simple gladiator this. So the Trades fighter, he's not named in the book, but we know that this is uh, Lieutenant Lanville, played by Roger Yuan, the film's uh, fight coordinator. So that promises we'll we'll see some some spectacle there. Um, but also the the difference here is that normally the gladiators are drugged to sort of reduce that that lane, uh, level of danger. However, that's not the case uh, here. So in the book, we know that uh, this is part of the plan of uh, Tufir, but. It's, it's not only uh, his plan, but Tuvir has been captured by the, the Harkonnens. Uh, we've seen like w w one glimpse of him um, and he's now their, their mentat and he's basically encouraging Fade to, you know, like f fight the gladiator, with, you know, like in a fair fair fight in, in a way that so, that so that he can be a hero and the, the person who's who's um, failed to, to treat the gladiator properly will, will be killed and then he can get his own man into place. So there's, there's a lot of like uh, uh, power... Um, uh, struggles go going on there. Uh, so uh, just the, the simple fight, there's, there's so much happening uh, outside of um, uh, there. So it's re re really, really interesting moment. So I think it's going to be spectacle in terms of action and what we what we realize is, is going on between the characters who are, are observing. We, we didn't see Lady Margot in, the, in this trailer, but she she plays an important role. And in the book, uh, Con Fenring, hopefully uh, will, will be in the movie. Like he, he has some important conversation here as well, but we'll, we'll have to see on that.
Okay, then we have um, the scene at 149, uh, where, where we see um, uh, Paul, he's ho holding the, the signet ring, the ducal signet ring of the of House Atreides. He's re reflecting on, on his uh, uh, his father, Duke Leto, and uh, we see again the, the, the paint, um, the painting burning. Um, and then we have the scene with uh, with the emperors saying how uh, you know your father was was a weak man, and as as mentioned last time, um, the emperor and uh, Leto they, they knew each other like they they were they were distant cousins. They had that relationship. And uh, tying back to like some of the foreshadowing in, in the first movie, the emperor is a very uh, jealous man. So while the emperor he's basically the, the ruler of a million worlds and in name like he has checks and balances on on his power right he has to contend with the with the guild with uh with with, with uh the choam uh he has to like manage the, the lanzarod so he doesn't have as much power as he would would want to um meanwhile you have leto he who he has just one planet under his control uh caladan yet he commands so much uh respect from from his peers in in the lanzarod and the, the emperor is is jealous about that form of, of power so while the emperor he's feared you know he can bring the the, the sardaukar to, to bear on on anybody and wipe them away uh duke leto has the respect so so that's uh uh interesting um yeah how, how they're going to go into that so i'm glad they're they're taking the, the time for the emperor to have those um th th those uh comments on on screen and get get a feel for you know that that's maybe hate that that he had towards uh uh, towards Leto. I mean, what, why did he set, send him to, to Rakus to be betrayed uh, anyway? So we're, we're going to get some uh, glimpses of that. Okay, so I'd like to, once again, uh, I talked about this last time, but just this awesome scene of of a whole uh, group of, of different thopters. Uh, I, I identified last time that one of them is unique. I haven't seen that one before, kind of right in the middle of the screen there. Um, so my speculation is that this is uh, an attack uh, on a siege, I don't, I don't know exactly which one. My theory that is that this is a, an attack on on a siege by the Harkonnen, and and that possibly, uh, I guess it's possible uh, this could be uh, siege Tabor, and and this is where uh, baby Leto the second dies. Possibly, um, it could just be since this is going to be a whole epic war movie. Maybe this is just one of many uh, attacks, um, but it's just you know really. We're going to see probably, I hope, a lot of this uh, kind of action. And um, and again, this is there's this is this is a battle to the point that um, Raban is left to his own devices. He's basically uh, been left to to maintain and fight against the Fremen without additional uh, reinforcements. And so. If that's the case, then the Harkonnen are going to get really desperate. They're going to use everything, every method possible. But, you know, the Fremen are, uh, they're fighting for their their lives and their families, that their homeland, right? So they're going to be uh, responding with with equal force. So it'll be really fun just to, to see, you know, this, this battle uh, back and forth. Then at uh, the two-minute mark, we see, which again in the book... The way Raban dies is literally just a little side comment. Um, obviously, Villeneuve's not going to do that. And what what I'm excited about what he's doing is he's we're going to see, uh, and we speculated about this. I think everyone on this uh, on this uh, show speculated that we would see uh, a duel between Raban and Gurney 
And um, it's it's pretty clear to me we're going to get it. And even even the way uh, Gurney kind of enters this this shot where Raban says, "Look who's back from the dead." Um, Raban assumed and uh, was sure that that uh, Gurney was killed in in the original assault uh, on on Arakeen, uh, but he's back, and so we're going to see this this duel. And uh, you know, Raban Raban doesn't doesn't win, and uh, it'll be just cool to see how Villeneuve writes that out to see how that's going to play out. Uh, how how do they how do they fight? Uh, Gurney is. It's said in the book a few times that he's one of the greatest warriors and strategists in the universe. So to see him uh, fight Raban, who is formidable in his own right, I think is going to be is just super cool and dramatic to see. Um, then we have a, a shot of Paul talking to to Chani, and he, he's he's I'm I'm trying to determine he's emotional, um, and he's saying I will do what must be done, and. I, I've tried to kind of speculate what what part of the story is this. I, hopefully, you guys have some better ideas than I do. But um, you know, I don't know if this is maybe uh, possibly he's grieving over the loss of Leto too, his, his, his son. I don't know if maybe he's uh, grieving over um, just the situation that that the the Atreides are in the. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I hope you guys have some some better ideas. But um, he he is saying, "I will do what has to happen." And um, then we see this really interesting scene, which is so beautifully shot. Uh, you're you're looking down on this enormous crowd of what I believe are fremen, and you see someone kind of walking through, and everyone's kind of getting out of the way of this person. And then uh, it moves in, and it's it's Paul and. What I really love about this uh, this outfit that Paul has on is it really, to me, and we've speculated about this before, but I'm going to go into full spoiler mode here. It really starts to be reminiscent of um, God Emperor of Dune to me. Like just the, the, the cowl and the way he looks um, could al almost be referring to much, much later in the story. I don't think I don't think Villeneuve is trying to introduce that to people, like I said, with him keeping it simple. I think that's too far out. But that's what it kind of was reminiscent to me of, is kind of indicating of uh, not only the power and the omniscience that he is becoming aware of and fully realizing, but it also kind of, for a guy who knows all the books by Frank Herbert really well, it, it sort of hints at things uh, to the future, and he says we gave them we we gave them something to hope for, um, and then this is the conversation that he's having uh, uh, with Lady Jessica, and and we can we can talk a little bit more uh, about that. But yeah, so I don't know what what does Paul mean by I will do what must be done. I'd like to know your thoughts. So, Garen, that shot that you're talking about, the God Emperor shot. Uh, I actually get more Dune Messiah vibes, like the preacher vibe. Yeah. And also the shot right before, if you zoom in close enough, you can see Aaliyah <laughs> with all those fragments. <laughs> uh, no, but right, what he's saying, right. I'm telling you, she's right there. Like, right there. I see her, yeah. zoom in close enough, you one. can see it. <laughs> yeah, the little, the little microscopic dot. Um, I think what he's saying, we, 
what must be done could be very much after the death of Leto the second, or it's just Paul saying, no, I have these visions and it must be done no matter good or bad, what I'm visioning, I have to do this. There's no other alternate version or else we lose completely. We die. The Harkonnens take over and we're extinct. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because you, you can't really see Paul's eye, so you can't really judge how far along he is. But Chani hasn't got the, the blue headscarf on, mm-hmm. which is perhaps an indicator Um but yeah, I, I think this is perhaps earlier on in their relationship and, and Paul is just out for vengeance and trying to stop his terrible purpose. And then and then this shot that is kind of a a mirror image of Chani uh fighting Sardaukar with the uh the Emperor's um tent in the background. Um so this is gonna be near the end of the story, uh, end of the movie is my guess. And and it's it's cool because just the same way we see um, Paul's visions are symbolic of what actually ends up happening, but it's not exactly what happens. Um, so again, this image that we see in part one um, that ends up being him, um, you know, doing doing all the the maneuvers and he's flipping in the air and he's he's uh, you know fighting the enemy, and then we see this exact same final killing blow by Chami right here uh, at, at uh, like two minutes and 12 seconds. So she does the exact same move, even has the same look on her face as we talked about in the last episode. So that's the, the prophetic vision that he was seeing in part one, not necessarily him necessarily, but actually seeing now it was Chani that was doing that move. And to me, this is symbolic of the power and the strength of the Fremen and Atreides in in uh, defeating the Sardaukar and the Emperor. So just, I, I love that nuance. And if you look at Chaney's arm in that scene as well, you can see she's got the blue scarf actually tied around her arm because uh, obviously you couldn't see it on her head. So it's obviously continued, that blue scarf is obviously very important to Chaney if she's wearing it into battle. Wow, you have a good eye, Mark. Wow. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Why don't we see that? Uh, uh, someone on Discord spotted that, so I, I can't take credit for that one. But uh, yes, it's a it was a good catch. Wow, that's fast. wait, where is it? Two twelve. Uh, if you have, a, yeah, if you, uh, two eleven, you can see very clearly as a as she's got her elbow up, and you can see it round her arm. Uh, okay, gotcha. Oh wow, yeah. Hmm. Hey, there you go. <laughs> oh yeah, it's gonna be a big. It's gonna be a. I'm. I'm Oh man, the last hour of this movie is just going to kill me, probably. <laughs> uh, if it if it lives up to uh, expectations. Oh, actually, at two minutes ten seconds, as she's turned facing away from the camera, her right arm you can see it clearly. I wonder if the action figures can come with. <laughs> Simon's mind goes first. I'm sure you can uh, mod it very easily. <laughs> Uh, but after that shot, we've got uh, Paul and Chaney uh, talking on top of the sand dune, and Paul says he'll love her as long as he breathes, which just sounded a little bit clunky to me. I, I, as long as I breathe, I, I don't know, but it didn't really uh, hit for me that one. Uh, and then there's a shot of uh, Ch- Chaney in an outfit we've not seen before with very much a, a big collar, 
And I think it was Calder June on Twitter pointed out that the, the light reflecting on Cheney looks like it could be reflecting off water. So perhaps this is in the uh, the big reservoir of water in the Fremen siege. It's a very quick shot. It's hard to tell, but perhaps this is some sort of ceremony in Cheney in a, a different outfit for that. Then after that, we've got a, sh a shot of Irulan in yet another outfit. Um, so this this could be um, in the throne um, with the fade fight. It could be somewhere else. We know that Jessica wore pretty much a different outfit in every single shot in part one. So it looks like Irulan is, is taking up that role in um, lots of costumes. Um, we're, we're then into the uh, more of the fade and poor fight. And uh, in this shot as well, you, you can see you can see some of what was in that black triangle earlier, I think, but it's just fuzzy heads, so it's really hard to see. Uh, there's an interesting shot where um, Fade is coming in with his blade and Paul reaches up and grabs a blade to stop it coming in, but then the next shot, uh, Fade doesn't have a bloody nose. So trailer trickery, different shots, different continuity perhaps, vision who knows but um the fact that paul is using his bare hand well gloved hand to stop uh, fade's blade is uh, an interesting move another shot of cheney looking at something and i think this is her from early in the trailer seeing the destruction of siege Tabar or wherever baby leto is paul comforting cheney and then there's a, a shot of uh stilgar and he, he seems to be nursing a neck wound so i'm not really sure where this would appear in the film, but he, he says he doesn't care what whoever believe, Jessica believes or whoever, but Stilgar is a true believer at this point. Paul has had a massive impact on either the, the most stern Fremen. Um, real quick, sorry to interrupt, but it just uh, it came to my mind because I've also been wondering where this shot could lie and what, what could be going on here. I wonder if maybe... I don't know if there's anything like this in the book, so one of you will have to probably correct me, but I wonder if he maybe survives that attack on the siege um, or is like injured in an attack like that where they then, you know, meet up with him afterwards. Because he's not even wearing a still suit here, if you notice. Mm -hmm. uh, he's wearing like more casual attire, like you saw what he was wearing when he was talking to Jessica in the siege earlier. So I'm wondering, you know, with all the dirt on him and the blood coming, if that's something where he is present in one of these you know raids and is you know he gets bombed and, and you know is like crawling out of here and, and speaking to someone i actually know this for a fact it's his audition to play vincent van gogh he just cut it off his ear at that point <laughs> no but it is a really interesting shot and i think johnny you might be onto something it might be after an attack yeah especially with how you know he's fervently kind of defending paul so it seems like he may have some people to answer to about <laughs> what's been going on right after that, though, we do get the, there's that scene of Paul on the cliff, which we basically got, uh, you know, a chunk of in the uh, prior trailer of him walking up. And again, where does this fall in some of the, the other scenes that we've, we've talked about with him talking to Jessica and that sort of thing. Um, I'm curious because everyone's gathered out here and he's walking out. So, you know, what, what is the context there? Again, maybe the, the better book readers among me will have a better answer, but uh, we also get that really cool shot of, you know, right after there, uh, Stilgar raising his knife and he looks completely, you know, uh, fervent and uh, totally radicalized by, by Paul and whatever speech he just delivered in the siege um, and others are kind of rising up, you know, behind him. Um, 
And then, of course, one of the most truly epic shots in the trailer right after that. And one of the, um, you know, best shots of a worm, really, that I think we've gotten, you know, overall, even though it is kind of uh, out of the focus here, we have a uh, figure. Let's we'll, we'll presume it's Paul Atreides for the, the purpose of the discussion today. But uh, someone is walking towards the camera and, and uh, it's not not really clear when this could be said or what the context is you know is it real is it a vision um is this during the battle is this another part where worms are being involved but uh it really really cool shot of the worm popping up there and uh, the way it's framed again is amazing but uh also we get a quick shot right after that some more action um this time it's looks to be like it's connected to the raid scene that we saw earlier on in the trailer um with paul and shawnee now, my question, what I can't figure out, and obviously this is, this is trailer trickery perhaps, but they're so far away from the harvester and, and they're like falling, it looks like. Um, I don't know if they're falling like over the dune after climbing like away from it or running away or if they're like being dropped out of the sky or something. But um, yeah, it's just interesting because they seem like like a mile away almost from where the harvester is, how, how, how the... Uh, distance seems um but the effects are looking awesome already you know there's months to go but everything's looking in good order and uh we have the speech of course while this is all going on we're getting the, the speech where we hear Muad'Dib I think for the first time period like out of the, the two films so far um Paul's giving that speech probably in the uh the siege that we see we saw Stilgar standing up in uh, a moment ago and then there's this quick zoom in shot it looks like a Harkonnen like transporter or something and raban is is uh looks worse for wear um i don't know if this is maybe he's realizing that paul is alive or um you know if this is maybe connected to that harvester attack perhaps um but that i thought that was an interesting kind of expression there from batista and then we have a a, a big long shot of the uh, siege that we saw earlier during paul's speech um, and again, I, I could go on all day about this shot, but I think it's just the design, the way that they decided to light it, the, the sense of scale. Um, it's it's really uh, spectacular and gives you a, a real sense of the the Fremen uh, population. Um, quick insert of the ring on his hand, and then Duke of Arrakis. Again, he's he loves his titles. He's really uh, giving himself a lot of the nicknames here, um, but raising his knife uh, for everyone to see, and then. Uh, Duke of Arrakis. Um, interesting shot here of basically it's a real, it's hard to tell exactly maybe who is walking here. It looks like it might be Paul um, towards Chani and some of these other Fremen fighters. This is after the big final battle and they're in the the palace or the keep. Um, and Chani does not look happy about whatever's going on it may it's perhaps maybe right before paul fights fade and maybe she doesn't want you know that duel to happen she's nervous about that or maybe it's even after the fight and we you know we found out that oh paul's gonna have to marry irulan sorry shawnee um but uh yeah something definitely is uh is getting to her there and then we i love um you know villeneuve loves his kind of sim symbols and his gestures and things like that and we get this quick shot of um the pounding on the chest that uh, Jamis did when he was fighting uh, Paul in part one, we get that reflected here and, and it connects to the shot in this, the line we got in the first trailer where he 
says, you know, may thy knife chip and shatter, just like Jamis said to him. So I like that they're tying it back again to part one, but also to Jamis who, you know, Jamis will teach you the ways of the desert and all these things. And again, just the the kind of double meanings and, and whatnot. Um, I think that that's all great. And I'm sure we'll be seeing more of that. Yeah, just to talk about Cheney's look. If you uh, if you watch, she she looks like she's giving someone the stink eye, and based on the geography of the set, that's wrapping around, and that would be to the left of Shaddam, which is where I think Irulan would be standing in that setup. So I think Paul is saying, "Sorry, but I've got to marry her," and she's looking straight at Irulan and is not happy. Drama. <laughs> Um, and then we finally get some explosions. I can't tell if this is part of Erkin or just where the Fremens are still. And then we get the infamous shot of Paul saying, long live the fighters. I'm not going to even try pronouncing it in Fremen because I will mess it up. And I've heard people saying that it's not accurate to the book, to what he says in the book. Mark, can you confirm that to us? No one seems to have come up with a, a pronunciation of what he's actually saying, but it doesn't seem... Arabic speakers have said it's not what the Arabic um, Long Live the Fighters is. So perhaps it's trailer trickery or, uh, you know, they've they've changed the, the Fremen language, which uh, I know that the language creator said he, he didn't believe that Arabic would survive into the far future, which, you know, English did and... Chinese did, but apparently Arabic didn't. So a lot of unhappy people with that. Uh, but again, it could be trailer trickery. So we'll wait and see. It could be, but it's full Paul Mordid um, in its glorious way. And if you look at the next shot, we see a bunch of Fremens. And we also, I think we talked about this in the first trailer. I don't remember. But if you look closely, there is a new Atreides flag in the back waving so it goes back to the vision that paul had then we see what we talked about in the last episode the full i like to call this the brave heart scene when they're going into full battle and there is one lonely fremen that is leading that is it Stillgard? is it you know chani is it even paul himself or is it gurney who knows we'll find out soon enough and then the shot that I was pleasantly surprised. We get a little bit of darkness and then we get Paul looking dead on to the camera. And I think this is the most, I know I just said that the long live the fighter shot was the most Paul Mordid shot, but I think this is it. And there's a bright light. And I was like, what is that? You know, I didn't even think about it. Ladies and gentlemen, atomics. Um, we don't have time to discuss atomics in this episode because we've been talking for a while, but I'm sure that's going to come up in the months coming up. But And then it is the credits. We see the Dune logo. And once again, I don't know if this was done on purpose, but if you look very closely, if you freeze frame and play by play, the Dune logo looks like it's coming out of smoke from like the Atomics, Dune Part 2, and then, you know, the cast and crew. Oppenheimer has nothing on Atomics. That's all I'm going to leave it with. Villeneuve just couldn't let Nolan have it. <laughs> nope. 
Yeah, and that, that final line is is of course referring to the to the spice because Paul at the end he does have the capability to to destroy the spice and the spice production, and that's when all eyes turn to Arrakis. You know, like once he's going to be taking away the precious substance that like everybody depends on, then he has the attention of, of the whole universe on that one single planet. Hey, so that was a, a lot to to, to cover in, in in one episode. We're certainly going to be diving into some of the, these topics as well in the in upcoming episodes as we count on to the movie. Uh, Simon, one thing I was forgetting, which episode number is, is this today? This is podcast 50, boys. What? Uh, uh, Five zero, halfway to a century mark. So, hey, that's a good, good episode to do it. Right? Good little trailer breakdown to celebrate uh-huh. 50. Wasn't done purposely, but thank you, Warner Brothers, for putting this out a couple of weeks ago. And we've been, <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you to everyone that likes, subscribes on YouTube, on any podcast feed. Um, I love the interactions, especially on the YouTube page. I love people's comments. Um, everyone that was saying I was crazy for that being Erlon. I mean, Alia last week, you're wrong. I can tell you where you can buy a tinfoil hat. Um, Amazon probably has some, but thank you everyone that's been supporting us since the beginning. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on again. It's been a blast as usual, an atomic blast. Um, <laughs> you can <laughs> sorry, I got my coat. <laughs> um, uh, you can find me on all the socials, um, just search for June Info. I'm even trying out the new threads, so uh, hit me up over there and uh, yeah, great to see you all. Yes. Thank you, Mark, again for joining us. Always great to have you on. And like Simon was saying, thank you to everyone that's been supporting the show, whether it's your first episode or your 50th. Uh, I have had just such a great time you know, on this journey. I mean, it's hard to believe we're part two is not that far away now. And we were talking before part one came out. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great time. And Johnny Sobchak here again. You can find me on social media at Johnny Sobchak and uh, I am looking forward to, you know, whenever the next episode is, uh, stay tuned and we'll be going all the way to the release of part, which is, look at, gotta look at what day it is. I can't remember what month it is half the time, but we're almost, I mean, it's uh, July, November's not that far off. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Always appreciate your, your keen eye to notice things that I, I didn't notice. So appreciate all your insights. Um, <clears throat> this is Garen. You can find me, uh, on Twitter at, uh, Dune Companion. Um, just really appreciate all the support. I love reading through your comments and your insights and ideas that people, uh, leave with us. Really appreciate the interaction and support. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, thanks to, to all the people who have been supporting us. Thanks to the whole community. Yeah. It really has been two years, uh, since, since we uh, kicked off on Dune Talk and even more since we started Dune Newsnet. It's been a epic ride and uh, we have uh, really big plans uh, but uh, yeah for, for now uh, look forward to uh, the upcoming episodes as we count down to uh, Dune Part 2 on November 3rd uh, this was Marcus Gabriel and you can find me at Marcus Riding. see you all next time we hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk remember to like subscribe and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops stay tuned to dunenewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.